Kia ora and welcome back to the Happy Saver podcast. I'm Ruth, a personal finance blogger here in Aotearoa. And in this podcast, I chat with a really diverse bunch of people and I learn their story and condense it down so that you can hear helpful, relatable stories from Kiwis who are sharing their experiences, their tips and their point of view on personal finance right here in New Zealand. So let's crack on with today's episode. My first interaction with Jess, which is not her real name, was in February of 2022, when she sent me a really lovely email telling me she'd been using my blog and podcast, plus the Barefoot Investor, to learn more about money so that she could learn some stuff that would keep her on track with some long-term money goals that she was beginning to form. And she told me that in 2021, she had managed to pay off all of her credit card debt. And I'm always impressed with people who managed to do that. It was early days though, and she was working towards her biggest goal of saving up six months of living expenses. Now at this time, she had saved up one month's worth, but she said that it had taken her ages to do so. And she had a couple of questions about how on earth she could speed things up. And she asked, how do people usually save up three to six months of expenses and live, quote, normally? So basically, I pointed out that if she had managed to get after her credit card debt and pay that off, well, now she just needed to apply the same amount of energy to building up her emergency fund. And I encouraged her to spend less and earn more and do it as fast as possible, which is not normal at all. Subsequent emails had her fired up and she had decided to quote, smash out the emergency savings because she knew she would feel a lot more secure knowing that money was stashed away and she promised to let me know how she got on. Well, before I do go on and tell you how she got on, how about I tell you a little bit more about the sponsor of this episode, that's the fabulous team at Pocketsmith. In this podcast, I've spoken to many people who live and work between a few countries. Maybe they work overseas for part of the year and have assets, bank and superannuation accounts in that country, but then return home to family in another. These global citizens and digital nomads use Pocketsmith's multi-currency feature to manage bank accounts and assets in different countries and upload digital copies of all the essential documents specific to each country. This gives them the confidence to do their own financial admin and keep the cash flow, well, flowing, no matter where they are in the world. Use Pocketsmith to keep track of your whole financial life in one place, no matter if that place is here, there, or somewhere in between. If you want to supercharge your finances with Pocketsmith, they've got a deal for you. Happy Saver listeners get a whopping 50% off your first two months of Pocketsmith's premium plan. To get your deal, go to pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. That's pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. In November of 2022, I heard from Jess again. Now, clearly the excitement of smashing out her emergency fund was beginning to wane. Instead, she was feeling left out. As a single 52-year-old woman renting in Wellington, she had been reading my millionaire questionnaire responses on my website. The majority were coupled up, double-income people who appeared to own property. And when she looked around her, that summed up many of her friends as well. And Jess just couldn't relate. And nor could she see how, despite trying, she could ever afford a home of her own. And she wondered if I could find and feature a woman on my podcast, any woman just like her who had managed to buy a home on their own, like truly on their own, with no help from Fano or anyone else, because she needed to be motivated by someone she could relate to. This was quite a change in emotion, and I wondered what had happened to her. Well, 
since we last emailed, she had caught the obsession of buying a house, but she had no clear plan to do it. Well, the emails flew back and forth, me sending her as many links and resources as I could find to get her out of the funk that she found herself in. I learned a little more about her in each email. She had a good job, and now that she was out of debt, she was saving a portion of her income each month. She was also paying above the odds into her KiwiSaver fund in the hopes of scraping together a house deposit. But having approached a few banks, none of them would lend her enough money to buy a house. So she was trying to work out how to invest instead, putting some money into the share market and watching it build, only to sell it all down to pay for her weakness, which is travel. She was resigning herself to always renting, something that she was actually okay with, but she had not given up entirely and she was continuing to learn how to invest her money properly so that she would always be able to afford to pay rent. I sent fresh reading material, podcasts and websites her way, and everything went quiet again. That is until March of 2023, when I received a very early email from a sleep-deprived Jess. She'd been up all night, too wound up to sleep because she had found out the night before that her offer to buy a house in Wellington, no less, had been accepted. Say what? How do you go from struggling to pull together an emergency fund to buying a house? So obviously, I had to know more, and I picked up the phone to chat with her in late March of 2023. Now, Jess wants the 50-year-olds listening to this to know that it's not too late to buy a home, if that is what you would like to do. So now, a little of her backstory. Her parents were originally from the South Island, her dad was a train driver, and her mum worked in a department store on the makeup counter. But when they were married and had children, first her brother and then Jess, she became a full-time mum. They moved up to Hamilton, which is where in 1970 Jess was born. Tragically, when she was just five years old, her mum passed away from cancer, and that shock completely changed the direction of her life. Very shortly after losing her mum, she said that the social welfare came a-knocking, pointing out, that it was best that Jess and her older brother be taken away from her dad because he would not be capable of raising them on his own, apparently. Her mum was ill for a few years before she sadly died, and I wondered if her parents discussed the future of their family during that time, if she was not able to beat her cancer. Now Jess thinks so, because before she got sick, they'd always planned to move to Australia, but her ill health stopped that from happening. In 1973, apparently the Trans-Tasman travel arrangement came into effect between Australia and New Zealand, so she wondered if that prompted them to think that they could move over to Australia because they might be able to earn a bit more money. She said that she knows that they were always short of money. Her dad always said that they never had any money. Also, Robert Muldoon had just become Prime Minister of New Zealand, and she said that they thought, okay, let's get out of here. So, Perhaps with these thoughts in mind, when the social welfare came knocking, her dad decided that was not going to happen to his family. So to keep the family together, within just six months of losing his beloved wife, in 1976, he made tracks to get out of New Zealand and move them all to Australia. He was a locomotive driver and he got a job with an iron ore company in Western Australia, about 1,500 kilometres north of Perth. So he really did move them to the back of beyond, leaving lush green New Zealand and the city life for remote Western Australia and a lot of red dirt and dust. She said that they walked around on day one and it was just so barren. She said that they walked in a straight line and apart from a few houses, 
There was just nothing to see, and she remembers thinking, well, this is interesting. She said it was like landing on Mars. Her dad went to work, so I asked who cared for Jess and her brother. Well, when they lived in Hamilton, they were friends with their neighbours, and one of their daughters used to babysit Jess and her brother. She had just turned 18, and she decided to go to Australia with them and work as their full-time nanny and housekeeper. Her parents were not exactly happy that she chose to go, but she was adamant and she said, no, I love those kids and I'm going with them and I'm going to look after them. Now sadly, her family was so put out that they actually didn't talk to her for about five years, but sometime later, her nanny and her father actually became a couple and they married in 1981 and only then did she reunite with her family. And they had a long marriage of 26 years until Jess's father passed away in 2007. Jess always felt so lucky to have her nanny and then stepmum with her every step of the way and they managed to make the most of a sad situation and she said it was really tough without her mum and it always has been but although different she had a stable home life and because her nanny knew her mum she was able to talk to Jess about her mum and at a time when her dad couldn't because it was too emotional to do so. If she wanted to know anything about her mum she had someone to ask and that was really wonderful she said. Although she never knew what her father earned, she knows that it was a reasonably good income, but it always got spent, and she recalls at one point the mine operator was selling off some company houses cheaply, and her father couldn't afford to buy it because he never saved any money, and he always said, money is here to be spent. He bought the latest computers and technology when they started coming out, he bought a boat so they could go fishing, which was a lot of fun, she said, so they always had all the toys and a really good life in that small town. There was very little to do there though, working, fishing, and if you were that way inclined, tennis or golf, neither of which her dad was into, or drinking. A lot of drinking went on, she said. His view on money was that wealthy people must have done something dodgy to get money, and she recalls a family had moved to their tiny town from Dunedin, and they met them and they had dinner at their house, and Jess thought they were really nice. They had a lot of lovely belongings, but on the drive home, her dad was in a bit of a snitch commenting that they probably didn't earn that money, it was probably given to them by their family, inherited money that they didn't work for. So her father had a skewed view of what wealth looked like, that's for sure. Jess was finishing her final year of school in the late 1980s, right at the time when the mining industry was laying off a lot of people. The company her dad worked for made a lot of engine drivers redundant. So while many were moving to Perth or to other parts of the country, In 1988, her father decided he would bring the family back to New Zealand. Jess didn't want to come. She wanted to finish up her schooling and go to university in Perth. She had her heart set on becoming a journalist and working at a newspaper. She hadn't even thought about how to pay for it, but she knew she wanted to go. There were a lot of robust discussions about that, and her dad was like, what the hell, what planet are you even from? Where did you get the idea that you could go to university? No one in the family had ever been to university before. No one had ever talked about it before. Only people who were from wealthy families went to university, he thought. It was a completely foreign concept to him. And her dad won. Because she was only 17 and a half years old, she had to go back to Aotearoa with them. She did manage to finish her schooling before she left Australia, so at least she didn't have the awkwardness of doing six months at a new school in New Zealand. Her older brother had already left home and was working, so he stayed in Oz and he remains there still. 
such a shame she was pretty annoyed when they returned to Hamilton, in part so that her stepmum could be closer to her own family. It was just after the stock market crash of 1987, so New Zealand was in a depression of sorts. It was a really low point, and coming home was just awful, she said, and the weather was rubbish, being cold and rainy, a huge contrast to Western Australia. With these unfulfilled dreams of university, she felt completely lost when she returned. And as a footnote to university, she found out that neither herself nor a single one of her classmates managed to get university entrance anyway, so she couldn't have gone even if she had have been allowed to, which is such a shame because it would have cemented her dad's view that she was just foolish to try in the first place. She can laugh about it now, and I have to say she has one of the best laughs I've heard, but man, that must have been tough at the time. Their housing situation deteriorated too, from a nice company-owned house to renting a two-bedroom flat, which they made as nice as they could, but it just wasn't the same. And she remembers feeling so down and out with little to no prospects. On the one hand, her life had only just started, and on the other hand, she was questioning where her life should go now. So she ended up getting a job, working on the checkout at her local supermarket, and she stayed for about 18 months. And at that time, she felt ashamed. At that time, it was considered a lowly job. But looking back now, she thinks about it quite differently and is proud of herself for finding a job in what was most likely a tough economic time. She was not on the dole. She was working and earning a living for herself, and some really good things happened while she was there. She met a guy that she ended up dating for about three years. He was a bright spark in her dark life, she said because she was really depressed, living in New Zealand and getting used to things here, and still living with her parents. So he was great, that was the best thing to come out of working, she said. And what did she do with the money that she made? Well, she didn't make that much, just minimum wage. She didn't pay too much attention to her pay slip in 1988, but she thinks she probably earned about $12,000 a year, which is about $35,000 in today's money. She had to pay some board to her family, She doesn't recall her or her boyfriend having much money to do things other than go to the movies, and he managed to save up and buy a car. She didn't save anything at all, but nor did she go into debt. Credit cards were not really a thing at that time. However, she does remember what the interest rates were because of an unusual event that occurred. If a child lost a parent before the age of 18, the public trust office kept some money in trust for them, apparently. So in 1989, when she turned 19, that money, and she thinks it was about $1,000, was released to her. She didn't even know about it, but a friend read it in the newspaper that the public trust were looking for both her and her brother, and they published both of their names. So she immediately put the $1,000 in the Countrywide Bank, which was later acquired by the National Bank, which was in turn acquired by the ANZ Bank. She put it into a savings account where the interest rate was, get this, 12.5% and she left it there for one year so that when it matured she now had $1,125. Now it was a huge amount of money in those days especially for her. Adjusted for inflation that would be about $3,000 today. She decided she would use the money to pay her board at home for a year and also for a one-year full-time secretarial and business studies course at Polytech and after 18 months of working at the supermarket that's what she did. So not quite the roving journalist she was looking to become, but it was a start. But she thought if she could get some office skills, then she could get out of the supermarket and go and work in an office job. She really saw herself as a young career woman, 
and she wanted to be that person that she saw in magazines and in movies, young women who pulled themselves up by their bootstraps to become career women. The course was great, she said, teaching her useful skills such as typing and shorthand, although with a lot of laughing, she told me that when she did start working, her shorthand was so terrible that she was scribbling away on the pad with no idea what she was writing and really had to rely on her memory instead. She said that she just bluffed her way through so many things. As her year of study drew to an end, so did her relationship, but not all was lost. She scored herself a job on the very last day of her course and immediately began work in the local office of a big state-owned enterprise, still in Hamilton, so not quite in Manhattan, but she was on her way. Her starting wage was $18,000, which was a huge and welcome jump in pay. When she first started, she was offered the chance to join their pension plan. For every $1 she put in, they would put in $2, and her dad gave her excellent advice here, and that was to join up. Having just turned 20, she hadn't even considered a pension plan, so his advice to join meant she made a really good decision. Although pension schemes have changed greatly over the years, none are so generous anymore. But the one thing that has not changed is an older person looking out for a younger person by telling them to sign up to a retirement scheme. Few people regret doing so. When she eventually left that organisation at the beginning of 1998, she used that pension money to finance herself on her OE, and she made it last a really long time, financing her through a number of years. It was a real shame it didn't get rolled into another retirement fund, but given KiwiSaver didn't start until 2007, I'd say her options to do so would have been really limited, had she even known to go and look for them. Now, while she was working there, though, the job itself was easy enough, but there were a lot of office politics, with a lot of really interesting people to work with, and not in a good way. There were some pretty awful things that went on there, she said. Now, this was the 1990s, and sexism, sexual harassment, racism and the like were just standard in many workplaces, even government-owned ones like where she was working but times they were thankfully changing. By this stage, she had moved out of home and was living on her own in her first flat, and initially when the sexual harassment from her manager began, she thought she would ignore or put up with it as best she could because she didn't want to lose her job and then her flat. But when one colleague and then a second divulged similar offending, she just knew straight away that she couldn't carry on like everything was normal. They took a sexual harassment complaint against the manager, which they won, meaning an instant change in management for her. Such a massive relief, she said. Times were changing, thank goodness, and this sort of predatory behaviour was beginning to be stamped out, and she said that she is thankful that the company moved so fast on their complaint. Now, I applaud her for having the courage and the power at the age of just 21 to speak out. The next couple of years were a bit rough for Jess. And we were unsure how to sum this up for the podcast in a diplomatic way, but it is safe to say that colleagues at work were not good role models for how to live a good life. If this was the real world, then this bright, young, impressionable 21-year-old was wondering what on earth was wrong with the adults in it. The job itself was fine. It was all the personal relationships that were just weird. The amount of people sleeping with each other, breaking up other people's marriages, predating on others, it sounded like a really bad sitcom to me. Talk about horrendous office politics and what she as a young woman had to endure. And it kind of puts money into context too, because it would be flippant and easy for me to ask Jess why she wasn't saving half of her paycheck. But Jess actually had quite a bit to contend with, thank you very much. And saving for retirement 
was not really on her radar at that time. She had been with this organisation for about two years when at the end of 1993, she answered an internal job ad where they were looking for writers in their internal communications team. She got the gig and began writing and was soon to discover that she was a natural. She was over the moon and it was the best thing that had happened to her so far in her whole life, she said, which is pretty cool, don't you think? And it meant a move to Wellington and she instantly fell in love with the city, staying in that job for the next five years. I love how her original gut instinct was to become a journalist and she had indeed begun to find her niche as a writer. And I wondered how her dad felt about this role. She said that they were both thrilled for her. The whole time she lived in Wellington, she rented. In those days, you could get a one-bedroom in Wellington for $95 a week, and a two-bedroom was $110. If you were paying $120, well, that was expensive. She met a guy, and they moved in together for about 12 months. But then she decided that she wanted her freedom, and in her early 20s still, she was too young to settle down. She hadn't really done anything yet, and she had all these dreams, you know, to go overseas, to work in London, and to work as a journalist. She really had the urge to travel, and she decided that she would prefer to be on her own and feel less like she was already married. And looking back, she says she was stupid not to marry him. He was the nice guy who she let get away, she said. She moved into her own place. Rents had snuck up, and she was now paying $120 a week for a one-bedroom flat, at the bottom of the owner's house, but it was lovely and the same people still live there and she goes past it often. She said of her ex that he was extremely logical and very, very sensible with money and she did learn some things from him, like the importance of paying off your credit card in full each month so that you didn't have that debt hanging over you. Prior to this, she used to have a credit card but never paid attention to the balance. In 1995, she had $2,500 owing on her credit card a huge amount of money for her at that time, but with his advice, she eventually managed to pay it off. Even though she learned this lesson, it doesn't mean she always remembered it though. She said their views on money were black and white, probably showing their different upbringings. When buying homewares for their flat, she would reach for the cheapest option, and he would buy the more expensive. And she remembers saying to him, how are you okay paying so much for these things? And he pointed out, that they were a far higher quality and would therefore last a long time. And she said that she now knows he was right because she still has some of those homewares and they have showed no signs of wearing out. As soon as she met his parents, who were really lovely, she could see that her and her boyfriend came from such different backgrounds. They were all university educated, a sensible, close and stable family, whereas hers were dysfunctional and chaotic by comparison, she said. Now, a funny financial mistake she made, she said, was breaking up with that boyfriend with the good taste in homewares because today he is on the MBR New Zealand rich list. So he really was the catch that got away. Although they split up, they stayed friends. And the day she told him that she was cashing in her pension to fund her OE, well, he actually hung up the phone on her because he was so shocked at her decision because he tried to explain to her that she needed to keep that money for her future. She could use it to buy a house or to fund her retirement. She said he didn't speak to her for a number of days, which is really unusual for him, and I wondered what she took from his reaction. Because what I took from that was that he could just see her making a monumental error, but was powerless to do anything about it. And you know what? What more was there to say about it? Best to just quietly hang up the phone. 
I would imagine that during their relationship, he'd probably shown Jess the way he managed money and tried to teach her a few good habits, but ultimately, she was a grown-up and wanted to take a different path to him, as was her right to do so, but he was powerless to change her. As she reflected on this, she can't help but think that it's because they never had those conversations in her family about money. Clearly, good money behaviours were second nature to him. Her whanau never talked about house buying. She didn't come from a family of house buyers. They rented. Owning a home of your own, it just wasn't even on the agenda. So her dad didn't teach Jess about it because, well, he didn't know about it either. Her pension when she cashed it in was $36,000 in 1998. That is $115,000 in today's money. So a very decent chunk of change. With a three-year working visa, she boarded a plane and she headed to London, where she worked in banking and then for a publishing company. But after just one year, her dad became ill and she wanted to come home to be closer to him as he worked his way through his health problems. She said his illness actually softened him up for about five whole minutes and he encouraged her to move to Hamilton and to go to university there. And at the age of 29, that's what she did, studying politics and economics. She found it to be a really fascinating course. The one thing I picked up as I was speaking with her was something I see a bit. A person who was good with money just screaming to get out. Instead, she repressed her skills by thinking she was no good with money, being told she was no good with money, and never quite coming across the right information to unlock the door that would really open up her eyes about how to handle money. But as we spoke, her attention to detail was really obvious. She could recall dates amounts and details of things that happened way back in the 80s and 90s. So that always gives me a clue that if a person can just flip their internal monologue from I'm no good to I'm really awesome, they will be away. And that's what struck me in the email exchanges we had. She was asking me searching questions of how to do a specific thing, such as save up an emergency fund. And then when she got that new knowledge and she worked out a plan for herself, she was into it. And the more we spoke for this podcast, I could feel her starting to put some pieces of the money puzzle together and her story started to build. She paid for her three-year degree using student loans, plus she did small amounts of part-time work, plus eking out her pension money. But much like her return from Australia, she took a while to settle and it took a while for her living situation to sort itself out. She flattered with some weirdos, (laughs) bounced back to her parents, which wasn't much fun either and then finally into a flat with some nice people. Her student debt was $12,000, and she finished her study with a plan. She finished her degree on the Thursday, and on the following Tuesday, she was in Sydney. No offence, Hamilton, but she said she ain't ever going back. She had just $2,000 left of her pension money, and she used that to set herself up for a new life in Sydney. And the year was 2002. Even though she had spent many years living in Australia, she was still not a citizen. Laws had changed in 2001, and if she was not in the country on that particular day, she had no ability to become one without a huge amount of effort. She did half-heartedly apply because she wanted the security and the stability that citizenship would give her, but she never took it any further. Jess explained to me that she always felt like a big theme of her life has been her feeling of insecurity which underpins everything. In particular, she's always had a real fear of being homeless. Therefore, it's quite ironic to her now that she has never really done anything to save for a house of her own, thereby giving herself the stability that she craves. 
In Australia, she started as a temp at a major bank. She knew nothing about them prior to starting, but people soon started to tell her, oh, they're the bank of millionaires. She didn't really understand what they were getting at, but she said that even as the office girl in a pretty lowly role, she was earning really decent money, and she recalls that they had their envelope day, which is the day when they give all the bankers their bonuses, and she was hearing about staff getting millions of dollars in bonuses. And they called her into the office. She'd only been there five months. She was still on a temporary contract even. And they were apologetic about the fact that they couldn't give her a full year bonus. So they could only give her five months worth or $2,000. That was a pretty incredible day, she said. She was made permanent, but she left after 18 months, picking up another job within days as a typist for a government agency. She was typing up transcripts of court proceedings. And she really enjoyed the work. She said that some days it was like typing up a soap opera. But after a year, she moved to a book publishing job, staying just one year until she reached a big turning point in her life. She saw an advertisement for a journalism cadet with a huge media company. And by this stage, she was 36 and her desire to get into journalism had just kept nagging at her. Over the years, she had applied for journalism jobs but kept getting knocked back. But when this job came up and she applied for it, She did get knocked back again, but they asked her to come in and interview to be a sub-editor instead, and a quick bit of research on what a sub-editor actually does, and she interviewed and got the job. It was a happy day, she said, and she was absolutely over the moon. She rang her dad and she said, you'll never guess, but I finally got a full-time job on a newspaper, and he was speechless and just really happy for her. So finally, at the age of 36, she achieved her career goal. She was earning around $50,000 a year. She never negotiated salary. She had no clue as to how to do that. So she was unaware of what she would be earning until the contract arrived. And she was just grateful for that, grateful to be offered a job, which would be an employer's dream to lowball an annual salary number and get away with it. She would have been happy to stay there for the rest of her life, she said, but she stayed for six years until she was caught up in yet another round of redundancies, at which point they got rid of a lot of sub-editors. So in 2013, Jess and her colleagues were turfed out the door. There was then a lot of competition for very few jobs, and she survived on a small payout they gave her until six months later, she got a job for a travel agent. She thought it sounded interesting, plus they train you up, but when she got her feet under the desk, she found that they were only paying a minimum wage, and the harder you worked, the more commission you could earn on top of that base pay. The trouble with that industry was that she was putting in a lot of hours to put people's trips together, but then people would just take those itineraries and they'd go and book them on the internet. So she did all the mahi and wouldn't get paid anything. So after a year of that, she was in dire straits and she didn't have much money left, just enough to leave the country and come back to New Zealand. And that was about it. And she arrived back here in late 2014. Now, I'm sure you are seeing a theme here of bouncing around jobs and always cutting it pretty fine with her money. All the time she was living in Sydney, whether she had a high income or a low one, she consistently just spent everything. Her natural tendency was to go down to the shops in the weekend and spend all her money. And that is what kept her stuck in the cycle of living paycheck to paycheck. At no point had she even thought about saving anything and the only saving she actually did was via compulsory contributions into her Australian superannuation fund. Now, Australia makes you save for retirement. There is no opt-out strategy, thank goodness. 
Not content to spend the money she made, she also took out more credit cards and started to spend money that she didn't have. When she left Australia, she owed about $5,000 on an Australian credit card, which she has now paid off, but it was a really difficult process for some reason getting the money from New Zealand to Australia. And throughout the period of keeping a balance, owing on her credit card, high interest amounts kept getting added to it. It was nice to have that one finally gone, she said. Her father had passed away during her time away, but her stepmother was still living in Hamilton, so Jess moved in with her for a time, so she did return to Hamilton again and picked up some receptionist work. She wanted to return to Wellington, but first she had to actually save some money to allow her to come back. But she achieved that goal, and she moved back to Wellington, picking up a job with the government department and renting a flat in Wellington. So once again renting, again living pay-to-pay, again feeling really insecure all the time. Until finally, hallelujah, in 2021, something finally changed in her and it propelled her to actually try to address the groundhog day that seemed to be her relationship with money and this endless earn, spend, repeat cycle. It began when she picked up the book The Barefoot Investor and that book has just been a catalyst for so many people. Why that book? Because I think that it just talks about the absolute basics, which is what led her to start asking me basic questions too. Author Scott Pape gave her a money plan that she could follow, and things began to change. She set up some new bank accounts, and because she still had lingering credit card debt, she began to really actively put most of her leftover money, after her bills had been paid, into paying off that debt. What also helped was about 12 months after reading the book, and when she was still paying off that credit card debt, she got a new job with another government department, once again as a writer, and that paid a shed load of money more than her old job. She used to earn $73,000 a year, and her new salary was $106,000 a year, so a huge $33,000 jump. She managed to pay off her credit card with the first pay from that new job, and that was a really great feeling. By then, she had formed the good habit of putting sizable amounts of money towards the credit card debt, So once it was paid off, after a few you-can-do-this emails from me, she was better able to put that money towards an emergency fund instead, and that's how she started building that up. And I asked how she decided what size it needed to be. At first she started with a goal of $2,000, which is what the Barefoot Investor calls your mojo, but what others call an emergency fund. And this small amount can ward off many a financial disaster, but it's just the beginning. So once she hit $2,000, she said, get this, it was quite easy to go for $5,000. And she hit that mark and then she thought, well, I'm just going to keep going and see how much I can save. And she found it quite satisfying just to put that money away. And I think that shows that making more money has a huge impact on your ability to make a financial U-turn. So for the 50-year-old listening to this who is asking, hang on a minute. How did she go from I'm living pay to pay and quite concerned to saving was really easy? Something clearly changed and I asked her what it was. What she had to do to ensure she stuck with it was that she had to set up those bucket accounts that he talks about in his book in a different bank altogether from her normal bank so that she had no access to spending that money and she couldn't see it. She didn't have an FPOS card for it so shopping downtown using that money was impossible. She could log in and transfer the money out, but she didn't. They were just normal savings accounts, but it just helped to have them in a completely separate bank. 
She set up four accounts according to the bucket system in the book, using them for different things, and she grew them to eight accounts and has now settled back to six. She set up these different accounts with a different bank to specifically set money aside for things like vet bills, medical expenses, an emergency fund, and a holiday account. And with each pay, she's just got all this money being siphoned off automatically with each fortnightly pay on the day she's paid. So she doesn't even see it. She has set up payments to move from one bank to the other. And seeing the balances of those accounts growing when she did check in on them was very satisfying to her. So what changed in her lifestyle? Did she reduce her spending on lunches at work or did her increase in income mean that she actually just kept doing those things? Her $33,000 bump in pay meant that she kept her spending up, lunches at work, takeaways and what have you. She had tried to knock them back, but in all honesty she said that they are still ongoing and she needs to do some work there. The shopping for pleasure was not too bad, but that was more due to where she lives. Central Wellington is not really that great in terms of shopping, so the temptation was not there as much, unlike when she lived in Sydney. The Barefoot Investor talks about a monthly check-in, and she does loosely check-in with herself at the end of the month. She looks at her net worth and how much she has spent that month, and she keeps a record of her transactions using her own spreadsheet. She tried budgeting at Pocketsmith for a while, but she found it a little too complex, so she ended up creating her own spreadsheet where she could work out her outgoings. And I know from experience that if you are having to manually enter each transaction, it's hard to stay current, and she said that she wasn't religious about it, and she updated it in fits and starts. But although slightly ad hoc, she was tracking her spending, and at the same time she began applying to banks for pre-approval for a mortgage. Now I was interested to know how this non-homeowner who had assumed she would rent for life, transitioned into going about buying her own home, because she had always thought that she was never going to be able to afford to buy anything, let alone a home, so there was no point even daring to think about it. She said that it was a conversation with a friend about 18 months ago in late 2021 that suddenly turned the light bulb on in her head. One day she was talking about her savings account and her KiwiSaver, and how she was saving about 50% of her take-home pay into each. Her friend said, so hang on a minute, you're saving 50% of your earnings, you have a lot of money in KiwiSaver, you can handle that amount of saving and still live, that's enough for a mortgage, isn't it? And suddenly Jess realised, hang on, she was right. The housing market in Wellington was still roaring ahead, but she still got all excited and thought she would make the effort to approach her main bank and talk about a mortgage. They said they would lend her money, but it was not going to be quite enough for her to actually buy anything in Wellington. It's harder for a single person on a single income to get a deposit together, and she found the experience really disheartening, which set her back a bit. Bowing out at the first hurdle, she thought, look, I'm not even going to bother, and she was so disappointed that for the next six months, she kind of just stopped looking. To look at things from the bank's point of view for a moment, though, I can see their reasoning. Here's a customer who has been, let's face it, pretty darn average with their money for the whole time they bank with them, and suddenly, just because they've pulled together the beginnings of a deposit, they want to borrow hundreds of thousands of dollars. I'd be cautious about lending to them too, until such time that they could build up a bigger deposit and a bigger track record of saving their money. It sounds like that is the view that they took. They didn't turn her down because of her single income status. It was just that her deposit was not yet big enough given the price of the houses that she was looking at. 
Unfortunately, it sounded like they were not overly clear about what she needed to do though, and Jess said that she really did need the facts spelled out to her, but the bank never really did that. It just sort of kind of fudged around the edges and said, we can't lend you such a large amount of money. If they'd have said to her, you need to have this much in a deposit to get a house of a specific value, she said she would have taken that and gone, oh, okay, I think I can work towards that. But she didn't get any clear direction. And she is annoyed at herself that she couldn't figure that out herself. But that was the honest truth at the time. So, feeling a bit miffed, she decided to change banks. The first thing she did was ask to have a discussion with a mortgage consultant. And this was a really interesting experience because the woman she spoke with was all over it. She was like, ah, don't worry, I've got your back and I'll step you through the process every step of the way. So Jess was feeling really hopeful as she went through the application. But the banker caused offence when she said one thing that really offended Jess. She was pointing out the money she'd made, the expenses she was paying for, the fact that she was now saving 50% of her income. But she asked Jess, prior to the last 12 months, where things look good, I can see that you've basically spent all the money you've ever earned. So where did all the money go? Jess felt belittled and was on the verge of saying something glib about blowing it all on her sun-filled holidays. But what she actually pointed out was that it went on rent, paying off her student loan and paying her own way every step of the way. Even though she did do a bit of travelling, she said it wasn't like she was spending her money on lots of extravagant things. It cost money to live, she explained. But once again, I could see both sides of that conversation. A banker's, hey, if you want my money, I need to know that this behaviour change that you're showing of saving 50% is ongoing because I don't want to give you lending and then you go back to spending every dime you have on holidays. To put it in perspective, changing your spending for one single year when you take out a mortgage for 20 is a bit like someone joining a gym and after just one month of going, considers themselves fit enough. You have to show consistent good actions over a very long period of time to fully embrace change and banks are well aware of this. Because she was sensitive to the way she was spending money, she took it as an affront to have it even mentioned. But banks just want to protect their asset, and I'm not surprised they poked the bear a bit. Now just coming back to her $12,000 student loan for a moment, when she was in Australia, it was quite difficult to pay her student loan back, so she didn't do it. As soon as she returned to New Zealand, the IRD was straight back in touch with her, welcoming her back to Aotearoa and reminding her that she now owed $23,000. If you leave the country for longer than six months, your student loan will begin to accrue interest, and hers added an extra $11,000 to her total. She managed to pay it off in full over many years by having 12% deductions taken from her paycheck. Although she was quite blasé about the student debt, thinking at times, why am I bothering to pay this off? Paying it off with those regular payments, being pulled from her pay, it actually helped her begin to form the habit of saving, she said. But back to her mortgage application. Despite the banker saying she would help her through the process, she didn't, and her mortgage application was again denied. But in February of 2023, things began to kick off again. She thought she would try a third bank and she approached the ANZ, asking for pre-approval to purchase a home, and this time she was approved. What made the difference? During the intervening 12 months, she had saved up more money. She gave them all her bank statements for each account for the last three months, and she laid every single expense out for them to see and judge her on. 
although there were some takeaways, as in food takeaways, there was not a lot of other spending, and you could see that money was being diverted off into her different savings accounts. By this stage, she also had $8,000 in her mojo, or her Only for Emergencies account. She was approved to borrow up to $360,000. In her KiwiSaver, her saving had added up, and she had $90,000 that she could use. So altogether, she could look at houses up to the value of $450,000. Although really pleased to be approved, she was worried that $450,000 was really not going to buy her anything in Wellington. But her banker was clear and they gave her a few guidelines and said, go out and look for a one-bedroom place. Two bedrooms would be better, but go and see what is out there. They also said, don't look in an apartment. We won't lend on that nor will we lend on anything to do with a body corporate. He said it's got to be a unit, a house or a townhouse. And just a few days later, she went to an open home outside of the city and she found a brick unit on a cross lease with one other person. It has two bedrooms and they were asking for offers over $430,000. So she sent the real estate link to the bank and asked if they could put an offer in on it and the banker said, yep, we will lend on that. So she put in an offer of $438,000. They came back asking for a little more and she decided that this was her one shot. The bank would lend up to four fifty, dollars so that was her final offer and at 10pm on a Friday night it was accepted. And she emailed me in the early hours of the next morning having stayed awake all night due to the excitement of it all. Her story blows me away because It shows what you can achieve in a very short period of time, just a few years, if you decide to go after something. It's quite remarkable. Jess asks herself, what would her life look like now if she had known all of this when she was 20? But I really do believe that you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Throughout her life, she would have been shown some instances of doing things differently. Take that boyfriend of hers, for an example. But until you really tune into changing your own situation, nothing's going to change. And if it takes until the age of 52, well, so be it. It's never too late. Now, I'm sure a few of you listening will already have thought about her Australian superannuation. Because of course, theirs is locked in until retirement age. You can't drain the fund as she has by pulling $90,000 out of her KiwiSaver to buy a house. She has brought her Australian super home to New Zealand and added it to her KiwiSaver, but by law, she cannot use the Australian portion for a home here. So thankfully, that means she still has $77,000 in her KiwiSaver, and I was really pleased to hear this. Probably relieved would be the right word. Otherwise, the math would look quite different, and she would have a 20-year mortgage to pay and have zero in savings, and with retirement just 13 years away, that is a problem but with $77,000 still invested that she will keep adding to from her wages from here on in, she will have a few hundred thousand dollars at the age of 65. So well played, Jess. So here is how the math is shaping up as possession day, which is in June, moves closer. And why is it in June? The property is currently tenanted and it will become vacant in June. She will have a $360,000 mortgage. She currently has $8,000 as an emergency fund. She has already set up sinking funds for rates where she needs to save up about $2,500 a year. So she's setting money aside from each paycheck as she works her way towards having the total amount saved up before the bill is due. 
She also has set up a bank account to save up for insurance, which will be about $3,000. And from each pay, she will put a portion aside for this bill so that once again, by the time it's due, she will have the correct amount ready before starting all over again. Plus, she has lawyer's fees to pay, so is setting money aside for that. And plus, she has other sinking funds on the go. So she has plenty of cash in the bank, even after she's moved in. Because she doesn't move in until June, she has time to prepare and save. It is so important that she is keeping money back, so that if something goes wrong, she has the money in the bank to handle it. And that's a really peaceful situation to be in. She's also saving up for a bicycle because she is moving out of hilly Wellington City. Additionally, she is setting money aside for a fridge and a washing machine, but she is going to be buying secondhand for these items. They do not need to be new, and she was a little bit horrified that a fridge has become this in-home design item and they cost a small fortune, so she's going to try to avoid that. She reflected on the fact that she is now saving up for things, and it reminds her of what her grandparents used to do There was no access to easy debt, they saved up money, and when they had the money, they got to buy the thing. Plus, once she leaves her rental property, her home of eight years, she will get her $700 bond back. Her one piece of luck was this rental property. Her landlord has got a lot of property all over Wellington. He's been buying since the 1970s. Her one-bedroom flat has had its issues over the years, but he has always been a really good landlord and fixed them straight away. But her lucky break was that her rent is $310 per week and it's probably about half of what other people are charging for the same thing. So once she got out of debt two years ago and with each passing month tuned more and more into saving, that fair rent has made the difference in how much she can manage to save each month. So once she is in her new whare, what's her intention with the mortgage? Even though the initial mortgage term will be 20 years, her plan is to aggressively get after it and pay it off fast. A 20-year term would take her to 72 years old, and she had that conversation with the bank. She says that she plans to continue to work. She does not see herself retiring ever, always doing some kind of paid work. But I called her out on that a little when I asked, will she continue to work because she wants to, or because she knows she does not have enough money? She thinks she's going to need to keep working to afford to live and that's just her being super cautious and thinking that this is the harsh reality of taking on a mortgage in her 50s. But I couldn't help but wonder if with the new information she has learned during the past two years about managing her own money that she didn't think herself with an income that has just increased up to $114,000 more than capable of paying that mortgage off far sooner. It seemed relatively obvious to me that she could It's just math, and her math is improving month over month. Well, this has not yet occurred to her, but I think it will if people like myself and others around her keep pointing out that she could. But for now, she said she's kind of focused on this massive mortgage and the amount that she needs to pay every fortnight. The next part of our conversation was quite fun as I explained to her that my hope for her is that now that she is more relaxed because she is about to be in her own home, and the fear of being turfed out at any point is gone, her work is stable, she will continue to get pay rises, and things will continue to go well for her. And if she has already been budgeting her income, and setting aside 50% of her income during the past 18 months, with no ill effects to her lifestyle that I could tell, well, if she can keep that up, her mortgage could be cleared far sooner than the 20-year term. If she can keep making higher payments, the mortgage is gone far sooner than she thinks. 
And just using rough numbers, I put her yearly after-tax and KiwiSaver take-home pay at $80,000. And if she puts 50% of that, which is $40,000, towards her $350,000 mortgage, according to the sorted mortgage calculator tool, using a 6% interest rate, she would be mortgage-free in 13 years, bang on the age of 65. Now, this was quite surprising to her, that she has the money and the ability to do this. As a good surprise, she said, because she had not thought about it that way, because she didn't know what she didn't know. But as she acquires new information, she is just working stuff out, and she was pretty keen to go away and do some number crunching of her own. The Sorted website is a really good tool for that. Just like her friend amazed her when she told her just a short time ago that she had enough money to buy a house, the thought that she doesn't have to stick to a mortgage term of 20 years, she can hit it faster and harder, well, that was amazing new information too. This is why I was so interested to speak with Jess. It's an evolving situation that is moving in a really positive direction for her. She is also exploring new opportunities to make money, such as having an international student stay with her for a period of time. And I spoke to someone recently who has always enjoyed welcoming students into their home, and the fact that they pay about $190 a week was super helpful too. Or Jess could consider having a visiting professional or academic to stay for a period of time while they work a contract. Or she could rent out her home while she took an extended holiday overseas. She would have to speak to her insurer about such things, but they are ideas that are swimming around in her mind. We talked about where her money might be located as she nears the age of 65, because I was hoping that due to her late acquisition of a home, she would not end up house rich but cash poor. Because of that Australian portion remaining in her KiwiSaver, she has a good base to continue to build on, and she was contributing 10% from her wages into her KiwiSaver in the lead up to buying a house, and that was in part because she was well used to higher contribution rates in Australia. A 3% contribution felt too low to her, and she was right, and more recently she has dropped her KiwiSaver contribution down to 8%, and her employer contributes 3% also and was considering dropping her contribution down to 3% so that she could bring more money home, but she's not made that change yet and is thinking that she probably won't. I really liked her line of thinking here though. The fact that she has had that Australian experience of seeing more of her income being invested for retirement, the fact that she is just 13 years away from turning 65, she is slowly becoming aware that if she can get there with hundreds of thousands of dollars in KiwiSaver, that would be the goal to aim for. And if she can also have a paid-for house, well, that would be fantastic. I think this is a better plan than people steaming towards retirement with no savings or money invested and the plan being to sell their home to release some equity. In my experience, those people will love their homes and they don't want to move. But I like that during our Korero, I watched the plan in her mind developing to hit two goals at the same time. Debt-free by the age of 65, with a substantial nest egg to top up her pension payment. And that way, if she wants to keep working, well, good on her, go for it. But if for some reason she does not, or she cannot, she will be far better off financially. She will have options. She has also created another bank account where each pay she siphons off $200. So by the end of each month, she has $400 in there. Once a month, she sends $200 to a Colonel High Growth Fund. She has been reading up on this investment and knows it's a diversified fund made up of over 98% growth assets, so it's more aggressive than she's used to. Her instinct is to be more in a lower risk balance fund, but she also has been learning more about investing. 
And she knows that if you leave money invested for a long period of time, over 10 years, then a more aggressive investment should yield higher returns. But for now, she's just testing out these systems and her resolve to see how comfortable she is with watching the value of it move about. The other $200 is being invested once a month into the SmartShares New Zealand Top 50 Fund using Sharesies. Plus, she has told herself that from here on in, this money is always going to be coming out and going to those accounts, no matter what else is happening. She is forcing herself, very successfully too, I should point out, to create a habit, vowing to herself that this invested money is going to stay put and not be sold off and used for anything else. And Jess, if you feel your resolve wavering at any point, call me and I'll talk you down. So what is her long-term plan for this invested money? She is still working that out, but basically it's another store of money to live on in retirement. In the future, she hopes to be able to sell small amounts of it to top up her pension. We stretched out her thinking of this further by having a conversation about the point of having money invested in KiwiSaver or the share market in retirement. And the point will be to skim a little off the top each year to top up other income that will be coming from superannuation payments and from working. It's very likely that if she remains working after 65, she won't even need to draw on any of her KiwiSaver or Kernel or Shares' investments. But the basic math to keep in mind is commonly referred to as the 4% rule. For every $100,000 in investments, you can safely sell off 4% or $4,000 a year and spend it. The bulk of the investment will keep growing and replenishing itself. It's the goose that lays the golden egg every year, and I encourage you to Google 4% rule for much more information. There will be a point in retirement where you can start to spend your capital or the fund itself, but the 4% rule is a handy one to have in mind when you are younger and you're starting to try to work out how much to save and invest for retirement. Now, Jess is still refining this, but I love the fact that she has now developed the discipline not to spend all her money, but is setting some aside for future growth and eventual use. Her finances are really coming together. She has come a very long way in just a few short years, where the word investing was not even in her vocab, all because about two years ago she decided to tune into some new information in the form of the Barefoot Investor and this podcast. Now there is one expense that she has never had to worry about. Although she has her car license, she has never owned a car. A few fender benders in her early years that put her off driving, and she's always lived in places with good public transport, so has not had the need to drive. And given she's about to move out of Wellington City, well, she made sure to look for homes that are accessible by public transport, so that's all sorted. I was interested to know how much does public transport cost? Well, it's half price at the moment, so she pays just $20 a week to get all over town, which is incredible value for money. And I knew she was into aviation, so I had to ask if there was any international travel on her horizon. Yes, she told me more about the flight length and the aircraft than the trip, but suffice to say, she is taking a short trip to America, which she booked well before she started to explore getting a mortgage, but it got delayed due to COVID. So it's all locked in, it's all paid for, and she is itching to go. So she's single with no kids, and it's just kind of worked out that way. She's got a couple of cats who are very happy to become homeowners. For hobbies, she loves listening to podcasts, especially the true crime ones. And she has always been crazy about interior decorating. She particularly likes shopping and scouting around for mid-century furniture pieces, even though they're really hard to find and are generally too expensive to buy, but no harm in looking. 
And the more we spoke, the more I could see that she is the kind of person who is passionate about home decorating, who sadly, until now, just didn't have a home of her own to decorate. Well, she soon will. However, she is adamant she is going to avoid the trap of many a new owner by embarking on a renovation. The house is sound and functional, and she can add her decorating touches in a cost-effective way. She finds it ironic that even though she has loved houses and gardening her entire life, she has never really applied herself to getting a home of her own until just a couple of years ago. And she honestly has the best laugh. And with a lot of giggling, she said, Ruth, this could possibly be the most exciting year of my life. And what does she think her biggest financial triumph is? It's where she finds herself right now, buying her first home at the age of 52. And as for the flop, it would actually be spending a lot of money on design, interior design and architecture books. When she left Australia, she had to leave them all behind. Such a huge waste of money. She has really tried to stop buying books since being back in New Zealand, but it doesn't mean she has stopped reading. Heck no, she just gets them out of the library instead, which is, of course, the perfect solution. Now, I think I've covered off her story pretty well, but before I wrap up, I just have another quick message from Pocketsmith, today's sponsor. If you want to supercharge your finances with Pocketsmith, they've got a deal for you. Happy Saver listeners get a whopping 50% off your first two months of Pocketsmith's premium plan. To get your deal, go to pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. That's pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. Jess said that she has been interested in being financially independent for her whole life. Back in 1990, she read a book called Financially Free, Think Rich, to Be Rich, A Woman's Guide to Creating Wealth by Anne Hartley. She read that and was very interested in the concepts mentioned, but at the time she didn't have a lot of money to save. None of us have a lot of money to save when we are young, and it's such a huge shame that she didn't instead take some ideas on board so that she had a better idea of what to do with her money when she did start to make a larger amount. Instead, she fell into the spending patterns that had been shown to her by her family. But that book did have an impact, and while she didn't become financially independent, she did in a way become quite self-sufficient with her money, always working hard enough to make enough to live. She took on debt, but only small amounts in comparison with many others. But she never really took that next step of not only covering all her daily needs, but preparing for financial problems to hit her, as they hit all of us from time to time. Nor did she take the next step to prepare for her future self. Better late than never, I say, she has and she still is working stuff out now. Now, as the giggliest guest I've had the pleasure of chatting with, she was absolutely fizzing with excitement for having finally started to work the stuff out. Every week, she is picking up a little more information. During our phone call, there were a few things we discussed that she was hearing for the first time. And now that she's kind of on the right track, well, a rolling stone gathers no moss and she will just keep improving her knowledge and her financial situation one day at a time. So spare a thought for Jess when in June of 2023, she puts the key in the door of her own home for the first time in her life. And while yes, she is taking on a large debt, she will do it from a position of strength with a mortgage she can afford, money set aside for emergencies, her KiwiSaver still building, and an array of sinking funds gently building too, and a holiday later in the year to look forward to. 2023 is indeed shaping up to be a fabulous year for Jess, and I'm excited to continue to receive updates and questions from her in the years to come. 
So thank you so much, Jess, for taking the time to Kōrero and for being so honest about your journey. You are an inspiration to others of that, I'm sure. So that was another long one from me, but that is all from me this week. And if you want to get in touch, of course, you can find me at thehappysaver.com. And please do share this podcast and my blog with your friends. It is the best way that people can learn about the podcast. And I would love it if you would, of course, talk more about money with your own friends and whānau and help me continue to help others be better with money. So until next time, happy saving. <music>